Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights Podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long. And now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom, Jim. It's good to see you. Shalom, Rabbi. Here we are through the the modern, God-given miracle of the worldwide interweb, as I like to jokingly call it. We have a very powerful uh, Torah portion this week, the portion of Pinchas, that actually begins in the middle of a story, which is quite unusual. It begins in chapter 25 and verse 10 of um, the book of Numbers. It's a, it's a, a real game changer. There's a lot going on in this Torah portion that, that I would like to speak about, which I think has a direct, um, a direct significance implication for, for everyone, for all of our listeners, for the Jewish people and for the whole world. And before that, we always read this portion during this period that we've now begin in Hebrew called Bein HaMitzarim. Bein HaMitzarim literally means between the straits, and it comes from the very beginning of the, the, the scroll of Lamentations, uh, speaking about uh, Jerusalem, that all of her enemies overtook her between the straits, S-T-R-A-I-T-S. And this expression, um, between the straits, like, in a narrow place, refers to this period of time between the 17th of Tammuz, which we just observed this past week on Sunday, the fast day of uh, what Zechariah calls the fast of the fourth, right? Because it's the fourth month, the fourth month, and Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, which is the day that the temple uh, was destroyed. So these days are very highly charged spiritually. They're, they're heavy days. And... Um, they are days, hopefully, of, uh, of transformation because, again, as, as we always emphasize, you know, this whole period of time, I mean, Jewish mourning in, in general is not about just uh, remembering what was and just pining for what, what, what was, but the motivation of changing it and doing something about it and, and rebuilding. I must say, Jim, before we begin our discussions today about everything in the world that we want to talk about, you know, <clears throat> this terrible uh, tragedy that occurred in, in Florida, oh, uh, the this, uh, yeah, the this condo, you know, the tower that, that collapsed, um, <clears throat> it's, it's just so profoundly um, affecting and moving, you know, there's, as of this moment that you and I are sitting here, there's still, I think, 149 people that are missing and 12 bodies have been recovered. And, you know, first of all, the loss of any human life is so horrific. And when it comes like that from a second to a second to the next second, it's so, what should I say, unsettling and unnerving? That's, those terms are, are not adequate, you know, you see what what how fleeting life is and and how every moment is so is so precious and obviously it goes without saying but we'll say it anyway that everything is part of a divine decree and and something ultimately that as impossible as it is to understand it's it's part of Hashem's plan obviously what's going on in the world and we read about you know that, that there were warnings that were ignored and builders contractors warnings and all sorts of things. Uh, so first of all, when I when I'm when I talk about the pathos and the agony of this whole situation, I'm thinking about the fact that there are families that are torn asunder and loved ones, 
and you know the the anxiety of not knowing mm-hmm. and of time going by and every day that goes by it becomes less and less likely that a survivor will be found i mean who could possibly live with that kind of incredible pain you know it's it's just it's so, it's so stirring that that kind of thing but jim i ha- i have this thought that's really bothering me the thought that's bothering me is that you know we had that terrible disaster in mayron Mm. And then uh, just a little while after that, there was a, a, a smaller disaster here in Jerusalem where also some, some uh, bleachers that had been erected for a large synagogue uh, not, far from, not far from Jerusalem out in uh, Givat Zev also collapsed. And, and I, th- I think three, three people were killed and many injured. And now this, it all seems to me Am I wrong? The same theme, this mm-hmm. theme of like collapse and, yeah. and, 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 and the earth kind of like shaking and, and people going down and things crumbling, um, having nothing to do with, with the sinkhole and with the, and with the earth swallowing up Korach. But this, this idea of these, 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 these terrible type of tragedies where basically it's like the foundation is giving way in each in each case, in a, in a way, right, and, yeah. and I'm thinking to myself, like this means something to me. This means something. This I I sense some sort of a message here, some sort of a, a pattern. It's like wow, everything is collapsing. I mean, it's like it's like the foundation is collapsing. Is what is what this looks like to me. Just <laughs> when I when I look at how at how strange it is that these things are happening how horrible right so let, let me let me continue with that thought for a moment and again you know we're we're mourning over the loss of the temple which led which led to exile now so there's an expression in the, in the talmud a strange kind of expression and important to understand which is that when there is retribution to be to be meted out it's it's like saved by Hashem. It's meted out by Hashem on a day deserving of retribution. Yeah, it's a the Hebrew expression. Megalgalim chiyuv liom liom chiyuv. Like if the, the, if there is retribution to be meted out, so it's it's saved. It's reserved for for a day, uh, which is befitting for retribution. A day that, as it were, that deserves retribution, and and that is kind of a strange expression. What does that mean? Is there such a thing that the, the day itself, a certain date, you know, deserves something to happen? So, 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 you know, on the seventeenth of Tammuz, the fast day that we just observed this this past week, there's a the ancient source, the Mishnah describes five things that happened on that day. You know, famously, as everyone knows, that's that's the day that, in the time of of the uh, exile, the um, Walls to the city were breached. The walls to the city were breached in the time of the Roman exile. Some say also in the time of the Babylonian exile, the walls to the city were breached, leading to fighting within the city that ultimately the temple was destroyed on the 9th of Ar, three weeks later. And some other things also occurred later in history, but there is the prehistory. The first thing that happened on that day was long before the period of the temple. In other words, the, 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 the day of the 17th of Tammuz is a day of mourning, 
for the beginning of the process that led to the destruction of the temple and the second temple era, let's say. But way, way, way before that, that was the day that Moshe descended from Mount Sinai and saw the revelry around the golden calf, and he broke the tablets on that very day. So that's the, actually the first thing that happened. Yeah. Just as when it comes to the ninth of Av, you know, that's the day that both holy temples were destroyed and also many other things happened, uh, terrible things happened in history later. But the first thing, again, the prehistory, the earliest thing, the ancient thing, as it were, is that it was decreed on that day that they would not enter the land because of the, the Lashon Hara of the spies who came back and delivered their evil report on those days. So, so those two things, I, on the 17th of Tammuz, the breaking of the tablets, and on the 9th of Av, the original sin, as it were, of, this, of the Lashon Hara, the evil speech of the spies, those are the, are, the, are the events that rendered these days, as it were, uh, days of retribution. They, they, they made the days into, into, into days of, of, uh, of retribution, right? So, so what does it mean that a, a day, a retribution is sent on a day of retribution? I mean, again, like I said, can a day actually be, is a day like a living thing that the day, you know, has a certain fate? So no, this is the secret. The secret is that when the spies returned with their evil speech against the land, that terrible sin made an impression not only on the human soul, but on the dates itself, in the realm of time. In other words, we always talk about this mystical idea that there's, you know, there's the there's the dimension of space and the dimension of of nefesh of life and the dimension of of time. <clears throat> well, they interact and they and they intersect. And so, when that when that jolt, that cosmic jolt, as it were, that building fell, <laughs> right? <clears throat> when that imploded, that sin of the spies, it didn't only affect the people, but it affected time. In the realm of time, it made a terrible dent, an impression. This is very deep. This is very deep. And we say the same thing. There's, there's, there's an opposite expression also that when there's something uh, propitious, when there's something positive, that's saved by Hashem for a positive day. Yeah. Right? Same, same type of thing. For example, everybody knows famously the statement of our sages that when the month of Adar enters, right, which is the month of Purim, when the month of Adar enters, we increase in joy. And there, it's an auspicious time. So when if a person, you know, has has some sort of uh, looming you know, court case or something like that, that's a that's a that's a I don't want to say a lucky time. It's an auspicious time. Just as when Av enters, the month of Av enters, we decrease enjoy and we have more overt uh, and obvious signs of mourning because a day in that this is the idea that our sages are, are saying and it's a very deep idea that on the day in which a cosmic sin transgression is done it makes a dent in time so what was the dent that was made on the 17th of Tom was not that Moshe cast down the Luchot but that they were dancing around the golden calf. So open up your heart in the deepest way. What happened? He comes down on the 17th of Tammuz, right? The day which later becomes, listen carefully, because this is an amazing idea. The day that later is to become the day that the walls of Jerusalem were breached. He comes down, he sees what's going on with the golden calf. <clears throat> and he breaks the, he breaks the luchot. He breaks the tablets. 
he drops them, right? Just like later, listen to this, I'm going to put it together for you. Just like later on the 17th of Thomas, the stone walls were broken. The stone walls of Jerusalem that were broken on the same day is a continuation. This is an unbelievable, open up your heart in the deepest way thought. The stone walls that were broken is a continuation of, this, of the stone tablets that were, that were broken. So what do I, what do I mean by that? <clears throat> There's a very enigmatic midrash, very, a very, very powerful teaching. That's hard to understand, but I think this is how we understand it. The teaching is that when the enemy laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, the enemy themselves measured and saw this is exactly what our sages say. It's very mysterious. They saw that the walls were sinking on their own a little bit every day. Wow. And, but I have to tell you, Jim, I have to tell you that when I learned that, my heart, my heart just um, skipped. And I, I, I really, because of, of what, I, what I opened up with, because of this, this, I feel that there's this theme of like, sinking all around us, the, you know, of, the, of these collapses that we're talking about. And, and now, I, so what do I say? Just say that the enemy were very, were very canny, you know, they were, and they were very, they, and surreptitiously they measured, and they saw that the walls were sinking on their own a little bit every day. And that's how they were so audacious to break it, because they saw that it was sinking on its own. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that really mean? This is, this is a metaphor. What it really means, and this is an expression that the Talmud uses about, about Nebuchadnezzar and about the, the Roman Caesar who destroyed the temple. The expression that the Talmud uses directed against Israel as a rebuke is that Hashem said to those enemies, you ground ground flour. Wow. You ground flour that was already ground. Yeah. Meaning you did not destroy the house. The house was already destroyed by Israel, in other words, spiritually, because of their transgression. And and you just were in the right place at the right time. And you, you know, you ground flour that I already ground, you know? So so what gave them the uh, ability even? the How could they dare approach the walls of Hashem's city and break it? Because it was sinking on its own, meaning that it was, that that's the cumulative negative destructive power of of that israel was do, was doing right yeah again I'm, I'm just hooking this up in my mind to something message that's reverberating in the world with with um with what's going on so 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 i take that further right to the ninth of Av, right I, I, so excuse me so 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 ba- so back again to the 17th of tammuz so, the, so the, the midrash famously tells us that Moshe, you know, descends from the mountain on that day. He sees he sees the revelry dancing around the golden calf, and you know the the scripture, the verse makes it sound like you know he he dropped the tablets, like he cast them down. But according to the sages, what happened was the writing on the tablets flew into the air. Yeah. This is their expression. The letters, the letters, kind of like departed. The letters, they 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 they're out of there. The letters left Hashem's, you know, Hashem's handwriting, and so they became very heavy, because without Hashem's word on them, they were just stone, and so he dropped them because they were impossible to to, to hold. So what does this mean? In other, in other, if if the if the tablets of the law were written with Hashem's finger. In Hashem's hand, how did Moshe have the nerve to break them? 
But what was written on it? This is so deep, right? What was written on the tablets? I have Hashem, your God, who took you out of Egypt, right? So he comes down. And he sees these people. What, they, what does he hear them saying? These are your gods, Israel, who took you out of Egypt. Mm. They're saying about, about the golden calf. And so he's saying to himself, how could I give them these when they're saying these are your gods, right? So the, the debrots, the divine utterances of Hashem, fled, meaning they have no significance if you're not going to be keeping them. So, they, so they're just stone, right? And so, and so too, what is the idea that you ground ground flour? What is the idea? Oh, the wall that was sinking, that this, this very elusive midrash is saying, oh, the enemy was measuring it and saw that it was sinking. Hashem's Shekhinah departed earlier. And so they were just stones, the stones of the walls, just like the stones of the tablets. And that's the meaning of, of sinking, right? That what was the holiness of the tablets of the law? The, ho the holiness of the tablets was the word of Hashem. But if you're not keeping them, so then, there, the, then the, the, the words uh, that were engraved there, the, the sages say, flew into the air, meaning, you know, it returned to its source, as it were. And, and so, too, the source of the breaking of the walls of the city was the cheta egel, the sin of the golden calf, just as, which is, which is why the, the tablets were broken, just as the source of the ninth of Av is the sin of the spies, which was this baseless crying, right? Like the sages say, people cried all, all night for no reason. So in the future, when there is a reason to cry, again, it makes it not that Hashem is vindictive, but there's a, there's a, a dent that, you, that was made in time and space. And there was a dent that was made on that day. So if there is later a reason to cry, that's, that's the day that you created, as it were, this, this, this pattern, uh, this is such a profound uh, idea, because this is really what the, the Torah really is, again, revealing to us a very uh, primordial and a very basic law of the universe, the way that, that Hashem fashioned the universe in that that he allowed us because here's the, here's the, the blessing and and the responsibility that goes along with it is that. This all began because he he made us co-creators with him. So right away, Hashem bestowed that power on us to to uh, impact the universe. And really, isn't Rabbi? Isn't that what the entire uh, the the offerings all of these are for? When you commit a sin and you you transgression, the reason that that uh, an offering is made, and I hope I'm not getting off on the wrong track here, is that every time someone transgresses against man and against God, there is a, a kind of a tear, and somehow it has to be restored. This is the idea of um, what we what some people call karma. Something has to come back. Exactly. And, ex so, exactly. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it, but but the question would be okay, and and of course your question is your point is very very spot on apropos because this parsha, of all places, which by the way this is another great question about our Torah portion Pinchas, the offerings are in this yes. the holiday offerings, the holiday additional offerings. First we have the tamid, yeah. and we have the holiday additional offerings are specifically mentioned in this in this portion. So yes, but about what you said. Okay, I agree that when we transgress, meaning we go against Hashem's word, meaning we interrupt the flow 
of the universe, there is a, a dent that's made, a wrinkle, a tear. Yeah. yeah. But what does what does offering an animal on the on the altar have to do with that? What is what is that? How does that offset it? As I understand it, it the it restores that that flow. It other I mean otherwise the uh, for, for the, the for the layman looking at that and going what a strange way to get back in God's graces to bring an, an animal and offer up its life. And I, I think it, it's, it's part and parcel of what you have just uh, more than alluded to is that, and this is even in, dare I say, quantum mechanics. We discovered in the modern, modern science finally discovered that, that even when you, when you conduct an experiment, by virtue of the fact that you are observing the experiment affects the experiment. It proves again that we are... We are co-creators. So what, what you just said is so incredible because, and I'm so glad you were able to stick quantum mechanics into it. Which of course <laughs> I have no idea what that is, but I know that you love to talk about it and it sounds cool. But anyway, I believe it. The point is, it's all about what, and we've always emphasized this, the, the whole idea of the offerings is, is not some sort of a, a cosmic balance, <clears throat> you know, of, of um, the animal's life going into the universe as much as the effect that it has on the person who is bringing it. Sure. Yeah. Because everything in the Torah is about man being the co-creator as mm -hmm. you, as you've said so, so perfectly, the, the gardener, the, the co nurturer of the force of life. And so when he separates himself from the reality of Hashem, the, he when he puts up a, a a divider because of his own actions, he's in terrible grave danger. He's in terrible grave spiritual uh, isolation. And everything that we've learned all throughout the book of Leviticus that we spoke about this so much, the concept of what of the profound, uh, dare I say, traumatizing, yes, effect in a good way that the bringing of the offering has on the person on the onlooker, like you're saying, it makes him realize so much about his own life, yeah. about preserving his own life, about uh, every, and everything and every, and every animal and every organ and every detail of the service represents a different human striving and power and failing. And the idea is that when the person goes through all of this and brings that offering, there is a, a more than a, a what I would call a chastising effect. There is a there is a quantum kind of kind of um, upheaval mm -hmm. within the nefesh of the person, and we have clarified uh, throughout our studies on Vayikra on Leviticus that that is in itself the secret of the concept of the of the sweet savor, the pleasing aroma that Hashem senses sense of smell of Hashem being a metaphor to a spiritual refinement that Hashem senses that this person is going through this upheaval now and realizing that they have behaved in a, not in a human way, but in a subhuman way. And in order to reinstate themselves with the, as it were, with the flow of the universe now, that's what this whole idea of, of bringing the offering is. And in the temple, there are offerings every day that are not only 
brought for transgression. They're brought as expressions of a desire to grow closer to Hashem. Because what happens if I want to grow closer to Hashem means that I want to be, I'm just cutting to the chase. It means I want to be less of an animal. Yeah, exactly. And more of a person. So so he, here in Parshat Pinchas, which by the way, begins with a ca- catastrophic vision of giving in to being an animal, okay, right. in, a, in a way. And so in this very Parsha, which contains so many secrets of going the extra mile. Pinchas went the extra mile. The daughters of Tzlavchad went the extra mile. The, the Musaf offerings in the Holy Temple, the additional offerings, they are an, an aspect of an additional level of holiness. The, this, this common thread is about showing a deep desire to do the right thing for Hashem and, to, and taking a, a leap and so here, you know, again, the key to understanding our Parsha is that we're about to go into the land. It may not seem that way because we still have the whole book of Deuteronomy to go, because, but that's Moshe's soliloquy before departing from his people. But again, last week, Parshat Chukat, I'll speak about more about this now, but Parshat Chukat was the turning point. And now we are about to enter into the land. And so, and so the concept of the, of the Torah of the offerings is is most applicable now for the Jewish people to start to understand that when they settle in the land, they're going to have the opportunity to bring a positive influence into the whole world for the sake of all humanity. And by the way, that leads us to another issue that we wanted to bring up in this in this episode, which is well, what does any of this have to do with the nations of the world? What does the mourning for the temple, what the rebuilding of the temple have to do with the nations of the world? And the idea is that besides the fact that there's a reciprocal relationship between Israel and the nations, everything is about reinstating the divine image in all of humanity. And Israel is responsible for that. Israel is responsible for for seeing that there is a vehicle set up for that. And that's what that's what this whole thing is all about. That's part of the process of being this priesthood is God saying, these are people who are proving that I can ask a people to live a godly life, and therefore they are this model for it. And Pinchas, in his his act of complete and utter selfless righteousness, he, he, this is a man who... Not, not self-righteousness, but selfish righteousness, like you said. Right. And here, here's a model for the priesthood. He possessed a blameless character total purity of heart, otherwise God would not have honored him for the for what seemingly is this outrageous act. It was the antidote to a completely morally outrageous act. Uh, first of all, you're completely right in everything that you said. And additionally, there, there were a lot of people who misunderstood him and who criticized him. There's a, a whole... Right. A whole, a whole topic in, in Chazal... How How is he to be regarded? How was he regarded? There were many people that thought that he was just a vigilante who took the law into his own hands, but that's not what Hashem thought, obviously, when he says, I'm giving him my covenant of peace. And he gave him an eternal priesthood because until then, he wasn't he wasn't officially a Kohen, even though he was actually Aaron's grandson because it it it, it, it didn't apply to him until, mm-hmm. he, until he made this move. But what happened was, uh, in the end of last week's Torah portion, of, uh, of I'm sorry, last week was Balak, not Chukal. In the end of last week's Torah portion of Balak, so Bilam's plan failed, as we know, and he couldn't get the words out, and Hashem kept changing, kept changing the words, and he found himself 
blessing the people of Israel instead of cursing them. And then he gave some parting advice to Balak after he foresaw the future of the nations. The parting advice that he gave them, according to our sages, is that this God of theirs, the God of Israel, hates immorality, hates promiscuity. So, so in, let, we have one more try, trip them up with, with promiscuity, and that will make their God angry. Mm-hmm. And, you and know, that Reb, was the snare, the snare of the daughters of Moab, and that's exactly what happened. That worked. Yeah. Bilam had to stand up overlooking this, this camp of Israel. I used to think that God forced him to say those things, that he lost his free will. But then I spoke with a friend of ours, a dear friend of ours, who is an observant Jew, and she told me the story of how she had taken her 12-year-old son to a, a therapist who actually a medical doctor and he, he had a kind of unusual therapy and he always made these slightly anti-Semitic remarks. They were, they were couched in kind of humor. And she said, one day uh, her son came with her and, and uh, he said, I'm going to, I want to talk to you about your son. And, and the son got up this 12 year old Jewish boy. And he says, mother, I'll, I'll leave you and the doctor alone. And he kissed her on the cheek and he said, I'll be right outside. And she said, the man's jaw dropped open. He couldn't mock her. He couldn't help himself. He had to praise this Jewish woman. Even an anti-Semite like Bilam, when he is confronted with, with profound character and, and purity, he says, oh, I got to call it like it is because that's what I do. So that's what happened. So at the end of chapter 24 in Balak, it's, you know, we read that uh, Bilam uh, got up and, uh, and went his way and, and uh, Balak went his way. And then all of a sudden, chapter 25, the end of, of last week's Torah portion of Balak begins that Israel is dwelling in this place called Shittim and the people began to commit uh, promiscuity with the daughters of Moab. And this was the advice that Bilam gave to Balak. And so Balak went and basically uh, they, they weaponized their own women. They weaponized their, their daughters. as So this was actually an act of war. Talk yeah. about the opposite of, of how goodly are your tents, so Jacob, that he said because, because their openings were not facing each other for the sake of modesty. Here, they used their own daughters, and then they invited the people to the feast of their gods, and the people ate and prostrated themselves to their gods, which was the whole goal all along uh, that the, the, the women used their wiles to get the people to become attached to Balpur. And then Hashem got very, very angry. And so it's a whole terrible scene that's going on. There's a play going on. Hashem is flaring wrath. Moshe said to the judges of Israel, each man kill his men who were attached to Balpur. And then all of a sudden, there's this terrible incident. A terrible incident wherein a, a chief of uh, one of the tribes of Israel uh, publicly sins with this Midianite woman in the sight of Moshe, in the sight of the entire assembly, and they don't know what to do. Yeah, They're weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting because they don't know what to do. And then Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen, saw, and basically he acted immediately and he slew them. And then he, and, and, and then the plague was halted, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. That's the end of Parshat 
Balak, and then suddenly Parsha Pinchas begins with the same story in the middle of the story. Hashem, mm-hmm. this week's Torah portion, Hashem saying to Moshe, Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen, turned back my wrath from upon the children of Israel when he zealously avenged my vengeance among them. So I did not consume the children of Israel in my vengeance. Therefore, say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. And it shall be for him and his offspring after him a covenant of eternal priesthood because he took vengeance for his God and he atoned for the children of Israel. There's so much to say here. There's so much Torah to understand. And we'll discuss more of it, God willing, in our video this week. But the interesting thing is, this must be, I think it, it is, I'm quite sure it is the only instance in the whole Torah of, of a story that was interrupted in the middle, as it were, that a Parsha ends mid-sentence Mm-hmm. In a in a story, and then the story continues in the yes. next Torah portion, and and the and the the um, practical difference, you know, that we need to understand is that in a scroll of Torah, there are spaces. Yeah, there are spaces, right? So there so there's a large white space in between most portions, and the reason, on a mystical level, we are told that the spaces are there. Because again, everything is from Sinai. Everything, how the Torah is written exactly was what was taught to Moshe in the, from the original Torah that, that he wrote at Mount Sinai at Hashem's behest. The spaces were to give Moshe an opportunity to contemplate. And for us also to contemplate because it's, it needs consideration. It needs meditation. And that in itself is, is so telling because this is like, again, like so totally... Um, unprecedented. I, I think that's the explanation that we can deal with, at least for for why there is this space in the story. Because everybody is going to be saying, "What what happened here? Who who is that man? Was that the right thing to do? Was that wrong? <laughs> Was that the right thing to do?" Because it is so um, totally out of out of uh, sync with what we would expect. Um, Hashem to want, or or what, or the one that we would expect Hashem to praise. Yeah. But but so so again, and and so many people take this in so many different directions. Is this is this a um, you know an, an authorization and an okay for you know for for such extreme behavior? And he's called a zealot, and because he was zealous for Hashem's honor, but he came at a time and in a place when uh, the establishment including Moshe and all the elders they were totally at a loss yeah they, they did not know how to react and and meaning that they there was a, a particular tradition that had been given what to do in a situation like this but it was forgotten this whole parsha is full of an extreme that is is matched by an extreme the the extreme passion of this couple Zimri and Cosby is matched by the extreme their their passion that was a, a passion that pulled them into degradation and to, to commit an act in front of the whole camp of Israel is matched by the passion that that Pinchas has for Hashem and his Torah. In other words, their unholy fire was quenched by his holy fire. Amen. Okay, so let so let me ask you a question. People people talk like this, Bible critics and all sorts of people. They say, oh, he was a murderer. He murdered somebody. He got up and murdered someone. Is that how we understand this? No, not at all. Obvious, obviously not. If Hashem says he has an eternal priesthood, and I'm not even going to the place that, I, that I'm going to 
save for the video, which is that <laughs> according to to a, a, a not uh, a not insubstantial opinion uh, in amongst our sages, the man became Elijah the prophet. Yeah. <laughs> the man, the man, in a in a very a very exceptional uh, kind of. Um, uh, thing that's is not something that is it's very common in in Torah study. We ha we have this very strong opinion that the man was transmuted into into a being, Elijah the prophet, who frankly never died. He, as as opposed to one thinking that this was like an act of uh, of um, he, he had no he had no personal agenda in doing this. Right, he and there was nothing in it for him. He did this solely to avenge Hashem's honor. He did it for Hashem. He did it for Hashem, and that's what that's what Hashem says here. Because he uh, zealously avenged my vengeance, right? Mm -hmm. So he actually he did this for all of Israel, right? And the Kohen, the descendant of Aaron, and Aaron was known for love, man, love, 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 <laughs> make love, not war. Aaron, he's the big lover. He's the one who, who, uh, who always was bringing about peace between husband and wife and between friends. And 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 that uh, Pirkei Avot says, "Be of the, of the disciples of Aaron, love, love peace, and pursue peace, and bring people close to Torah." He he was a man of peace. Aaron was yeah. a man of peace, but yet. Pinchas is a Kohen, he's a descendant of Aaron. And that's specifically why the verses here, why the verses here trace his lineage all the way to Aaron, as if to say, this is what a Kohen really is. Yeah. Because this actually, this actually was an act of love. Mm -hmm. It was an act of love, not only for Hashem's honor, but for all of Israel. Because the worst, because because Bilam got smart in the end, and he gave Balak the advice that that he needed to 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 uh, wreak the havoc that he sought because the destruction of the family unit is the destruction of the people we see this today as well on every level of society and this is how our parsha it's very timely yeah. our parsha begins here with this public desecration of hashem's name and this public this public uh, um, act of immorality which was um beyond all shame and beyond all sense of dignity and was and represents the total breakdown of morality to be able to do such a thing in in public which was a direct extension of of the what was going on uh, in the children of Israel with the daughters of of Moab and it was all calculated to destroy the nation from within, as it were, like one of these buildings, like we're talking about crumbling down to break the foundation so that it crumbles down and implodes upon itself. Because without the purity and the integrity of the family units of husband and wife, then everything is hopeless. Everything is totally, totally hopeless. These evil men knew that. Yeah. It just seems like that is what some evil powers in society today know as well. You can connect the dots from the Torah. And uh, uh, there's a through line that runs in this narrative that shows you what he did was completely righteous. And that is you go back to Bilam saying, here's how you defeat and destroy Israel. You go after the family purity. Send, send in an army of, of, of Mataharis to insinuate themselves into the camp. The fallout from this is you have a, a leader of the tribe of Shimon 
copulating in public in front of everybody. There are thousands. This, this of, was not about this was not about sex. This was about war. Right. It was about destruction. It was a weapon. Because and, yeah. and, and this the, and the, and the sexual aspect of the story was only a device to bring the people to rank idolatry because right. the women would say to the men, "You want me?" So then first bow down to this idol. Yeah, that's exactly what the plan was to totally destroy the entire spiritual underpinning of the Jewish people. Pinker said someone's got to someone's got to act. And to prove, I think, his selflessness is that he knew that he could be slaughtered by his own people for doing this. Our sages actually talk about that, that as far as he was concerned, it was like a suicide mission. Yeah, because he he expected that someone was going to. Uh, judge him exactly that way. You know, they were crying, Moshe and the elders were crying because they forgot this particular halacha that Hashem taught him at Mount Sinai, which is that in such a case wherein someone does this in public and there was no warning because generally the Sanhedrin, the court has to give a warning if someone is going to be prosecuted for something liable for the death penalty, there has to be, there have to be witnesses, there has to be a warning. None of that happened because this happened right away in front of everyone. And the, and the law in such a case is this exact expression, a kana'i, a person who is zealous, strikes. Yeah. Zealous person is entitled, is empowered to strike. And Moshe forgot that. But the deeper secret is that Moshe was not the one to do it. And that mm-hmm. is something else altogether that we'll speak about. Maybe I'll get to it in the video. But the idea is... Pinchas was that one. And so Pinchas actually was acting in, so, so for those that might be thinking, oh, is the Torah, you know, celebrating or promoting, like you might say, vigilantism or something like that. No, there's a very specific halacha that Pinchas was aware of, and he knew that, that it was up to him to reinstate, as it were, the peace between, between uh, the children of Israel and their father in heaven. That was the whole thing here that happened. Isn't there a saying, when there is no man, be the man? You you step in the breach. That's actually in, in the chapters of the fathers. Okay. Where there is no man, strive to be a man. Yeah. In fact, in, in the history of Israel, they've had, they've had women who've, who've <laughs> kind of, you know, fulfilled that role too. We have the beautiful uh, section in our parsha of the daughters of Tzlavchad. Yes. Who uh, came to challenge what had hitherfore Heretofore been understood as a patrilineal system, mm-hmm. they came to motion. They said, our father passed away and having nothing to do with the, with the congregation of Korach. And he had no sons. And they wanted, they desired a, a portion of the land because that, that's what this is all about now. Our, our Parsha is all about getting ready to go into the land. In fact, in our Parsha, there is, um, of the, the Torah portion here of Pinchas, we have the second census of the children of Israel. There are two censuses that take place in the book of Numbers. The first one took place in the beginning of Numbers. And that was about basically uh, the children of Israel settling in, in the desert around the tabernacle, who's doing what, who's camping where. This one, this census is about getting ready for the tribal portions that are going to be uh, determined by lottery when Joshua takes the children of Israel into the land. That's what, that's what this is all about. Of course, the, the Levites are uh, 
separate. The Levites in the first census were counted, albeit separately from one month on. But in this census, they are not counted because Hashem is their inheritance. They don't occupy themselves with other things that people are occupying themselves with, agriculture, etc. because Hashem is their inheritance, meaning that Hashem provides for them with the, the gifts that they are to receive, the tenth and the truma, etc. So so our our portion in that way is preparation for entering. But anyway, these women, they, you know, so many, so many different um, streams of Judaism and and all sorts of uh, people speak about these women as being like a, a role model for, for feminism, you know, that they that they came to speak out against, you know, the male, the male uh, authoritarian, uh, you know, the, the whole thing. And it's that is so ludicrous. It's so ludicrous because these women, their whole thing was their unbelievable love for the land of Israel and their demand to be to become mothers in Israel, providing for their families mm-hmm. and, for, for, and, and basically to, to settle the land. And it's, it's not that they wanted to be on, on par with, with a man or better than men or anything else like that. It's, it's what they were expressing was actually a, a very, very deep um, um, uh, desire to, to fulfill their roles as, as women in Israel. And they are also the they're heavily contrasted against another set of daughters in this parsha, the daughters of Midian. They are the polar right. opposite of that. Right. They're they're, they're an example of what uh, a woman should be. They were they were amazing women who were totally motivated to uh, take their place amongst the the children of Israel and to fulfill their role. And uh, their entire motivation was love, love of Hashem, love of Torah, love of Israel. And it wasn't some sort of self-promoting. Uh, it, 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 they weren't a group of people that were, that were dissatisfied with their lot or that were trying to, to prove themselves. They, they simply had a, a legitimate question, a Torah question. It's very, very similar in some ways to the concept of the second Passover inquiry that also had come about as a... Uh, what we call a lower arousal, as it were, came about as an initiative of the people from the ground up who came forward and said, "We, why should we be left out? And Hashem said, that's a very, very good idea. I was just waiting for you to ask. Yeah. Here too, why was it necessary for this for this particular halacha to be unclear? Why was it necessary? Why wasn't it understood from the get-go that a, a, a man who had no sons that his his daughter could in, his daughters could inherit? Obviously, it's because we needed to learn from the not only from the incident, but from the personality and from the presence of these women, from their from their sheer dy, dy, dynamism, dynamism, from their from their from their whole essence. We gained so much from knowing who these women are that Hashem arranged it in, in His Torah so that we should have this experience of, of meeting up with the daughters of Tzalaf Chad. You know, don't you see the connection in this Torah Parsha and, and its teaching of, of what Hashem is looking for in His priesthood and the coming uh, of, of Tishpa'av, the idea of the loss of the temple? Here is this idea of this very public sinning and, and what it could have brought about. It literally could have destroyed an entire nation. So in a world where public sinning is an everyday occurrence, we daily anticipate the, the uh, house of prayer for all nations. As, as far as, you know, the world that we live in today, 
one thing is clear from from the unfolding of events between last week's Torah portion and ours this week and this whole story, it was very, very clear to Balak and to Bilam, who essentially represent the force of evil and who knew very, very well how to manipulate forces and how to bring about destruction that was that was their calling card and that and they're still around in many in many ways and all the things that they excelled in one thing that was clear to them was that sexual immorality is the key to um bringing about the destruction of uh, of humanity and the humanity uh, in question at, at the time was this this particular group that they sought to strike, the children of Israel, because they knew that the, that their entering into the land would totally disrupt the balance of power and their and their stranglehold that they held over over people, because of what Israel was going to accomplish by building the temple. And so they wanted to destroy Israel, and this is how this is what they settled on, and and uh, it's so totally chillingly apropos what we see today that there are these forces that are employing the same methodology to bring about plague and destruction the the book of numbers as we've been learning is is divided in basically into two halves the first one from the beginning until until parshat korah and the second one from from balak uh or actually from from hukan and uh um, until uh, the end, and uh, Chukat being the the transition, we talk about this. You know how the first half of the book deals with the generation of the Exodus. You know those who participated in the Exodus and received the Torah, and that generation was passive. And when I say passive, I don't mean in a negative sense. I mean that that generation was totally acting on Hashem's will. Hashem took them out of Egypt, and there were great signs and wonders. And there, were no, there was no real initiative from their side, right? Hashem raised them up to such a level that they were able to receive Torah at Mount Sinai. And then, of course, they had Moshe's unparalleled leadership guiding their path. And, and, and so nobody else was, was able to make an initiative because it was like Moshe and as Hashem's agent and it was Hashem himself. That was that generation. And they made all sorts of mistakes, as we know, which were that are documented by the Torah that all took place in the, in the first two years of the wilderness because you know then we have radio silence until until Parshat Chukat of 38 years and uh okay that was part of the personal tikkun that they had to make according to their nature their all their sins their sins were not between man and his fellow their sins were all between them and Hashem because they needed to work on understanding their purpose you know which was to make their will Hashem's will and then we had this transformation that took place in Parshat Chukat, right? In, in the 40th year, the generation that we're dealing with now, the generation that will inherit the land. And, and you know, we saw that the leaders were departing in, in Parshat Chukat, Miriam and Aaron, and then Moshe received word that he will not be continuing as leader. And so this generation, Jim, and this is, this is exactly the main point of our Torah portion of Pinchas in every way. This generation is called upon to be active. It's a generation where every single individual has the right to express opinion, right? And the focus is shifting from, from Moshe to the nation, right? The nation is now an active partner in bringing about their own redemption, which is the redemption of the world. And, and, and by the way, as part of this same process, what else happens in this parsha? Yehoshua is appointed to lead the nation. Yeah. 
Yeah. And what's Moshe's main concern? Hashem, Hashem tells him, you know, go up, you're going to see the land and you're not, you're not going to go in. And, and Moshe doesn't, doesn't um, challenge that or anything. He says, Hashem, God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come before them. El Elohei Haruchot. Uh, it's a very unusual expression how, how Moshe is entreating Hashem now and saying, God of the spirits of all flesh. What does he, what does he mean by that? So, so, um, so Rashi has a very um, interesting comment and he explains that what Moshe was intending was, he was intending, he said, Master of the universe, it's re- revealed before you that each person is of a different mind. Every person is different, has a different consciousness, a different, you know, a different spirit. That, that's the idea of God of the spirits, the ruchot of all flesh. Every, every person is different. In, in the generation of the desert, it didn't mind, it didn't matter so much because they were, had one, they had one, they were on one path and it was a unit. But now that they're going to be going in, he said, please appoint a leader over them who can deal with each of them as individuals, who can understand each of their needs according to their minds, who can bear them, really, who can empathize with them and understand each one where they're coming from. Right? Uh-huh. The, new leader, the new leader is going to have to make room for every single person, every single tribe. And that's why when, when Hashem chose Yoshua, he said to Moshe, what was the quality that he found in, in Yoshua? And Hashem said to Moshe, take Yehoshua bin Nun, a man in whom there is spirit. And as Rashi says, like you requested, who can go along with the ruach of each person. Well, sounds like Mashiach. <laughs> you know, someone who really commiserates with and, and relates with everybody on every level and, and understands them. That's amazing. The, the, right, the right person for that, for that generation. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, again, again there's the, such a different perspective of the generations because in the, when it came to the generation of the desert, you know, uh, they asked for water and Hashem was, as it were, angry. But in Parshat Chukat, they asked for, they asked for water and there was no anger. And, and then, and then um, uh, uh, you know, the way they fought their wars, the Battle of Amalek was totally a matter of divine intervention. All, all dependent on Moshe. He raised his arms, Israel prevailed. He lowered his, ar- his arms, the other side prevailed. But the battles that appeared, that appear from Chukat onwards, the people of Israel go to battle in a very conventional sense. And, and, and that's the thing, you know, today, a lot of people say, I've, I've heard this so many times, people say, there's no miracles anymore. People say, how come in the, in the Bible there's all these signs and wonders and there's no, there's no miracles anymore? But this is exactly the difference between the generation of the desert and the generation that was to go into the land is that Hashem is waiting for us. Yeah. Aside from the fact that there certainly are miracles, but the point, the point is, it's, 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 everything is up to us, right? You know, you know um, uh, we, we also talked about how, you know, when, when they crossed the sea, it was, it was then Moshe and the children of Israel sang, and it was a responsive song. But in Parshat Chukat, the children of Israel sang, and Moshe's not even mentioned. And, and, that, and that's the key to understanding the events that you and I have been speaking about in this portion as well. You know, the, the zealousness of Pinchas, 
who the verse says arose from amidst the congregation, right? It was all action. It was all proactive. It was all initiated from, from here. The same thing with the, with the new census in this week's Torah portion. It's all about the individuality of every person, which is now going to be manifest when each tribe and each family receives its portion within the land. The same thing with the daughters of Tzlavchad. It was a, it was a very, very, Exp- it was a very strong expression of individualism, not an expression of feminism, because again, they, they're the ones who, who really wanted to take their role as mothers in Israel. But everything here that we're reading about, same thing with Yehoshua being chosen, it's all about our ability to, to even the Korbanot that are mentioned in the parasha, that's about Israel's ability, to, like you were talking about, to influence the world, to influence the cosmic cosmic balance. So everything is about initiative. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make even today when they, when they speak this way and they say, you know, oh, how come Hashem doesn't, doesn't make miracles? I, it's all about the fact that, that, that we are to make the miracles happen. We are right. to yeah. bring them about. We are to act and not to wait. And that, that, is, that is happening before our eyes in the Parsha, in the, in the succession of Torah portions that we're reading, and it's happening before our eyes in our own time. And it's basically the, the, the same challenge that we have today is to go in, to, to uh, settle the land, and that's as far as Israel is concerned, both metaphorically and and literally, and also for the nations of the world. You know, the, we we have our our marching orders. All of us have. We know what our priorities are. We know what Hashem wants from us. We know the world that Hashem wants us to build and to continue. And it's it's totally up to us. And in, uh, also in the reciprocal relationship between Israel and the nations, it's totally up to us to bring these values back into the world. And this Parsha begins with this cataclysmic nuclear event to remind us that, that, that modesty is the vanguard of, of everything and, and the guardian uh, at the portal uh, that is the thin line between, between uh, life as we know it and, and total destruction. Yeah. And, and, and that's the, the force of, of, of Bilam in the world today is the force that is trying to undo humanity and unglue it with this particular, uh, this particular failing, which is which leads to total total destruction. And what you've just outlined there is is the total character of Pinchas. His lesson to us is to act. I, I always see this connection between uh, Eretz Israel and Gan Eden. Re-entering the land is parallel to God placing Adam and Ahava, Adam and Eve, into the garden. And then saying to them, uh, okay, I'm going to take care of everything you need to do. No. He says, I want you to dress the garden and keep it. He gave them a job to do. And, and again, that's, that links us to being co-creators. And the, the sages even alluded to the fact that if things hadn't gone the way they had with Adam and Eve, they would have been a priesthood. You're exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly correct. Exactly correct. Well, Jim... As Joni sang back in Woodstock, we got to get ourselves get back. back to the garden. Amen. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I think about that all the time. Perfect ending. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Amen. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.